Thank you uh, for listening again this evening. Uh, we've come to the end of Mark's Gospel, uh, and this evening we're going to be looking at verses, uh, or chapter 15, verses 40 to 16, verse 8. Uh, if you want to open your Bibles there, that would be great, and we're going to read through. When you open your Bibles to Mark chapter 16, one of the first things you'll probably see uh, is that there seems to be some confusion as to where Mark's gospel ends. You'll see most Bibles between uh, chapter 16, verse 8 and verse 9, they have a break. My ESV Bible says some of the early, earliest manuscripts do not include chapter 16, verses 9 to 20. It's one of a place in the New Testament where we get this. This happens. There's some uncertainty as to whether a chunk is part of the original text, and that's in John chapter 8. And the uncertainty around the ending of Mark is not something that's new. If you read online, there's some people out there who want to make this uh, debate about the end of Mark uh, seem as though it was started by theologians in the 20th century uh, who didn't like some of what verses 9 to 20 and wanted it to remove it from the Bible. But actually, the uh, debate around where Mark's gospel ends has been going on for many, many centuries. Uh, the books, even from as early as the 4th century, where people expressed doubt as to whether verses 9 to 20 of chapter 16 are authentic and actually written by, by Mark. It's almost certain, actually, verses 9 to 20 of chapter 16 were not written by Mark. And so this evening, we're going to concentrate on verses uh, chapter 15, verse 40, through to chapter 16, verse 8. Now, that may be a bit, bit unsettling for some to hear me say that part uh, of gospel, the last 11 verses aren't part of the Bible, even though they're in the Bible. Uh, but I don't want this to undermine our confidence in, in God's word. We're not going to spend uh, really any time on the problem of the ending of Mark's gospel this evening. Uh, but what I'm going to do, I'm aiming to on Friday, I aim to give some pointers on, to, on to why I think Mark's gospel, uh, the end 11 verses, verse 9 to 20, are not written by Mark and not really part of the original gospel. It will be really good for us as a church to think through that. And as we think through that, it will be good for us to see and, and think about how our Bibles are put together and how it is that we come to, to have the text that we hold in our hands uh, this evening. But we're going to leave that for Friday. This evening, we're just going to concentrate on the end of the, the, the gospel up until uh, chapter 6, verse 8. Let's read those verses. Now, there were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James, the younger, and of Joseph and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they had followed him, administered to him. There were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. When evening had come, since it was a day of preparation, that is the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected council member, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already have died, and summoning the centurion, he asked whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And Joseph brought a linen shroud and taking him down, wrapped him in a linen shroud and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. 
Now when the Sabbath had passed, Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Salome brought spices so that they might go and anoint them. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. He said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He's risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go and tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Amen. Let's just uh, pause there and pray, and we'll ask for God's help as we consider his word to us. Dear Father God, uh, we thank you for your word to us. We thank you for this Gospel of Mark that we've been reading through where we see the glory of our Lord Jesus. Father, we pray for us this evening as we consider the truth of the resurrection. We pray, Father, that may, may impact us and take root in our hearts in a new and deeper way. Father, we pray that it would uh, help us and spur us on to live as Jesus' disciples. Lord, speak to us, we pray. Continue to grow us and transform us through your word and by your spirit. In Jesus' name. Amen. When we started going through Mark's gospel, I gave out a sheet with an overview of the book on it. Probably don't remember that. It was around about a year ago. Uh, but it began uh, with chapter one, verse one, uh, where this good news is announced by Mark. It's called the good news of Jesus Christ, the son of God. Uh, and in those early chapters, we, we saw Jesus, the son of God, his authority, his power. Uh, he was controlling the storm, healing the sick, raising the dead, casting out, out demons. Uh, and then uh, uh, about chapter eight, uh, there's a turning point in the gospel. We get Peter's great confession in response to the question. Jesus asked him, who do you say that I am? He said, you are. Christ and up until that point the disciples have been slow to see who Jesus was but now Peter uh, sees that Jesus is the Christ and at that turning point Jesus begins to talk about the cross and three times he predicts his death and his resurrection and he tells his disciples at the end of chapter 8 what it will mean for them to follow him they too will have to deny themselves take up their cross and to follow him and from that point on, really, the shadow of the cross looms on the horizon. And last time we saw Jesus crucified. And as a centurion watched Jesus die, he confessed, truly, this man was the son of God. And on that sheet I gave you at the beginning of these studies in Mark's gospel, there were three questions, three questions that we were to keep on asking all the way through the gospel that would be very helpful. The questions that are really helpful for anyone reading through Mark's gospel for the first time. And if you read through Mark's gospel with a friend, they're, they're just helpful questions to keep on asking. And the three questions were this. The first one, who is Jesus? That's a question about his identity. The second is, why did Jesus come? That's a question about his, his mission, his purpose. And the third question is, what does it mean to follow Jesus? What's the right response to Jesus? 
And that's a question about discipleship. As we look at this final section this evening, we're just going to take those three questions. Uh, They're going to help us unpack uh, these verses and hopefully they'll also help us to trace some of the main threads through the gospel uh, right the way to the end. So the first question is, is who is Jesus? And as we uh, look at this ending, we will see it has much to say about that question of of who Jesus is. This ending, uh, Mark wants us to see, really happened. It is important. And it cannot be ignored. There are some people who read the Gospels uh, and they like the Jesus that they read about in the Gospels. He's good. uh, He's courageous. He's loving. He's kind. They like his teaching, his willingness to stand against what's wrong and oppose hypocrisy. They believe that he lived, that he was a good moral teacher. But they have great difficulty when it comes to believing some of the miracles. Particularly, have great difficulty when it comes to the end of the book and the resurrection of Jesus. They cannot, just cannot accept it. We live in a scientific age, they say. We know that once people die, really die, they don't come back to life. But that's obvious. Well, that was obvious also to the people of the first century. In fact, they would have probably been more familiar with the realities of death than we are today. No one in the first century was expecting Jesus to rise from the dead, even though he told them clearly three times that it was going to happen. Resurrection was just as unexpected then as it was today. And yet there are all sorts of details in this passage that show us that Mark is writing to tell us that even though it seems impossible, even though it kind of turns our world upside down, Jesus really did die and really did come back to life. This ending really did happen. First of all, there are the the two Marys. We read about them in verses 40 and 41. Mark identifies them precisely. This is Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Salome. They're identified twice like that. Maybe James and Salome were even prominent people, people knew in, in the church in the first century. These two women watched Jesus die. They, they knew Jesus. They cared for his needs. They'd followed him. They were from his hometown. And they'd watched him die. They'd also watched him being buried. You can see that from the end of uh, chapter 15. They saw where Jesus was laid. So when they go to the tomb on Easter Sunday morning, they're not at the wrong tomb. They knew which tomb Jesus was buried in. And when they do go to the tomb on the Sunday morning, They're not going to witness a resurrection. They go in with spices uh, to honour and anoint a dead body. And as they go to the tomb, they're pondering about how on earth they're going to remove this great stone that's been put across uh, the entrance to the tomb, been sealed. So these two Marys who watched Jesus die, who knew Jesus, who saw him buried, were expecting to find him dead. And then there's Joseph and the centurion. Jesus died on the Friday. Uh, The Sabbath would begin at sundown on Friday night and go on till Saturday sundown. And in verse 43, Joseph, we're told, Joseph of Arimathea, bravely goes to ask for the body of Jesus. And as he goes to ask uh, Pilate for Jesus' body, Pilate is surprised to hear that Jesus is already dead. Usually crucifixions uh, took longer for people to die. And so he speaks to the centurion. Centurion assures him Jesus is dead. 
this centurion would have known his business. For him to fail in carrying out his orders may have proved fatal for him. He would have been an expert in this kind of thing. If a centurion said he was dead, he was dead. The centurion would have been very familiar with the realities of death. And then Joseph goes and takes the body down. He wraps the body in a cloth. He puts it in a tomb. Plenty of opportunities there for Joseph as he handles Jesus' dead body to hear the gasp of remaining life or to feel the thready pulse of someone who's still alive. But no, Jesus has died. He is laid in the tomb and there's this stone put over the entrance. Now at that time, the stones would have been designed to, to quite easily be rolled over the entrance, but very hard to move away. There would have been a groove where they would have rolled downhill to cover the entrance. Once you got the stone rolling, it would roll into place, but then moving it out of place, that was a much more difficult task. Jesus really died. He's sealed in a tomb, but he really rose again. Like I said, no one was expecting the resurrection. The women went to the tomb to anoint Jesus' body, but when they get there, the angel greets them with this astounding news. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He's risen. He's not here. See the place where they laid him. How do they respond? Well, they respond how you'd expect anyone would respond. They're alarmed. They run from the tomb. They're astonished. They're trembling. They're afraid. I think that's a fairly normal response to finding out someone who you've seen killed and buried three days ago. Is, is now alive. We've seen through the Gospels that often people's response to Jesus' miracles is, is fear. The disciples, when they see him calm the storm, they're fearful and in awe, astonished at Jesus. When uh, the people on the other side of the Sea of Galilee saw Jesus cast uh, the demons out of the demon legion out of the man, they're suddenly in, in fear of Jesus. And now this this greatest of miracles has, has happened. The resurrection, it was astounding to these women. Deeply disturbing to them. And the resurrection is just as astounding and shocking and unsettling today as it was 2,000 years ago. The resurrection really changes everything. It turns the world upside down. If we accept that Jesus rose from the dead, we must rethink everything. The man Jesus, he's this real man, made of flesh and blood like you and me, really died, his heart stopped beating, his lungs stopped breathing, he was buried, and on that first Easter morning in the tomb, his heart began to beat, his blood began to flow, he breathed again, and he left the tomb. This man, Jesus, defeated death. The resurrection, it really happened and it cannot be ignored. We can't really in any credible way read Mark's gospel and come to the conclusion that Jesus is simply a good moral teacher, a fine example. We can take or leave a good moral teacher, but a risen Christ cannot be ignored, ignored. And this ending really is the final and the biggest piece of evidence that Mark lays down for the true identity of Jesus, that he is the Christ, the Son of God. And the resurrection, 
while it was a surprise for everyone else, it was no surprise for Jesus. He said the Son of Man must be crucified, buried and rise again on the third day. And through the resurrection, Jesus shows without a doubt that he is the Son of Man, this one to whom all authority and kingdoms and rule is given. And this ending causes us again to consider the identity of Jesus. Who is Jesus? The second question was, why did Jesus come? And this ending points us uh, to that purpose, really. It points us to the start of a great gathering. As we've gone through uh, this Gospel of Mark, we've seen three times that Jesus say in his own words something of his purpose and his mission. The first one is in Mark chapter 1, verse 38. He says he came to preach the message. What was the message? The message was the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the good news. And the second time he talks about his purpose is in Mark chapter 2, verse 17, when he says these beautiful words. Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. And then the third uh, purpose statement we saw was in chapter 10, verse 45. Jesus says, well-known verse, the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus came to preach good news, to call sinners to follow him and to serve and give his life as a ransom. At the end of the gospel, we see the suffering servant die as a ransom. And then I think we see here in these final verses, the beginning of a, a, a gathering, a new gathering around King Jesus. We saw last time we looked to Mark's gospel of this Gentile centurion. This, this Roman tough man. He confesses that this is the son of God when he sees the way that Jesus died. An outsider who becomes an insider. And then there's Joseph. He's a member of the ruling council of Israel. He would have been a religious, a devout, a zealous man. He would have probably been there in chapter 14. It describes there the whole council as seeking testimony against Jesus to put Jesus to death. Joseph was a member of that council. He may not have been one of the vocal ones. But he was part of that group. And now at the end of the gospel, Joseph is identified with Jesus. He's described as someone who's looking for the kingdom of God. He wants the good news and he makes the connection between Jesus' death and the good news. We see that in verse 43 of chapter 15. It says Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. This man who was once described as a, a secret disciple is now identified with Jesus. And then there are these women who had faithfully cared for Jesus, even in his death, but now given this earth-shaking news. They're the first witnesses to the resurrection. They're told to go and tell the disciples and they will meet Jesus. Back in Galilee, where it all started in their hometown, there's going to be this gathering with Jesus. All those disciples that were, were scattered when the shepherd was struck are now going to be gathered and reunited. And can you see there that Peter gets a special mention? Go and tell the disciples and Peter. Even Peter is going to be gathered and the relationship with his Lord and Saviour is going to be restored. 
self-confident Peter who was utterly dejected and denying Jesus. Remember those bitter tears that Peter had wept only days earlier. The proclamation of this good news that, that flows out from the tomb is also for the people like Peter. Jesus came to call sinners. Jesus came to give his life as a ransom for many, for the centurion, for, for Joseph of Arimathea, for the women, for the disciples, even for Peter. And in this mixed group of people gathering around Jesus, as the news of the resurrection begins to escape from the tomb in Jerusalem, we see a, a glimpse of what's going to happen. Jesus has predicted in chapter 13 that the gospel was going to be proclaimed throughout the nations. And it was proclaimed, and it continues to be proclaimed throughout the nations. And as the gospel goes out, many people, this mixed bunch of people, men, women from different uh, backgrounds, from, from, from different upbringings, uh, all are gathered round the Lord Jesus Christ. People who were once divided by sin and shame, now united in him, rejoicing, knowing the forgiveness of sins and the hope of resurrection. And I hope as you're listening, you are also one of those people who, who now belong to Jesus and has been gathered to him. So right at the close here, we get a picture of the purpose of why Jesus came, of his mission, as this gathering around the risen Christ begins. And then there's uh, this final question, what does it mean to follow Jesus? These verses here, uh, I think, provide us with fuel for our discipleship. There's a story uh, of the adventurer Ernest Shackleton. He was wanting to do an expedition and he put this advert in the newspaper. Men wanted for hazardous journey, low wages, bitter cold, long hours of complete darkness, safe return doubtful, honour and recognition in event of success. It's not a very appealing advert, is it? You, you can't help but think you should have hidden some of that in the small print. In chapter 8 of Mark's Gospel, we saw Jesus give out his advert for the discipleship programme. And there was definitely no hiding anything in the small print in that advert. Let me read to you chapter 8, verses 30, 34 to 38. Jesus said this and called the crowd to him with his disciples. He said to them, if anyone will come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and for the gospels will save it. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with his holy angels. Jesus says, if you want to follow me, you have to deny yourself. Denying ourselves it means saying no to some of our strongest desires and our, our deepest wants. Sometimes it means turning away from things that are legitimate, uh, not just things that are sinful. Denying ourselves is going to be hard. Taking up our cross, the cross was an instrument of persecution. People 
carrying their cross were on their way to death. If we wanted to put uh, Jesus' words in more recognisable language, we might say this, if anyone wants to be my disciple, he must slip the hangman's noose around his neck or must sit in the electric chair or must take a cell on death row. Taking up our cross means identifying with, with Jesus in his sufferings and in his obedience to his father. And losing our life for the sake of the gospel. That's another stipulation for discipleship. One of our most basic instincts, isn't it, to save our lives, to look after ourselves. But being a disciple means letting go of this life. It means spending this life for the good of the gospel and not for our own pleasure. So this is Jesus' advert for discipleship. And, and in some ways, it's a pretty poor advert for the gospel, isn't it? Who on earth is going to take Jesus up on this offer? Who on earth is going to follow Jesus if it means denying ourselves, taking up our cross and losing our life? Think about the alternative. The alternative looks far more attractive. The alternative is to please ourselves, to stay safe and to, to look after our life and keep hold of our life. And if the gospel and all there is to the gospel is the cross, the son of man's suffering, being handed over to death and being buried. If that's all there is to the gospel, then who is going to follow Jesus? But what we see right here at the end is the cross is not all there is to the gospel. There's also this resurrection. And the resurrection means that the reality of discipleship now, denying ourselves, taking our cross, losing our life, is going to lead to the certain future of glory with the Lord Jesus Christ and a life saved. A life lost now means a life saved. And if we refuse to follow Jesus and grasp hold of this life, Jesus says ultimately we will lose everything. As I said at the start of this point, resurrection fuels our discipleship. Resurrection proves that Jesus' words in Mark 8 are not just hot air. The resurrection proves that there really is life on the other side of the cross. Jesus really is the Son of Man described there in, in verse 38 of chapter 8. For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father and with the holy angels. And he said to them, truly, I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they, until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. The disciples got a trailer of, of the glory of, of Jesus, the glory of the resurrection in the transfiguration. That was almost like a, a preview. The disciples also saw the real resurrection of Jesus, the kingdom of God, come with power they saw the reality of, of the power of god's kingdom when they met jesus in galilee when they they touched his hands when they, they ate food with him and the resurrection of jesus means that we will all see jesus on that great and awesome day when he returns and as we think about here at the end of mark's gospel and the resurrection of jesus we must let the truth of the real 
bodily resurrection of Jesus fuel our discipleship? You see, we all have a choice. Will we let go of our life, our desires, our aims, our stuff, our ambitions, our plans and follow Jesus, living our lives for the sake of the gospel? If we do that, we will save our lives. Or or will we turn away from Jesus? Will we grasp at an illusion? And will we lose everything and find that on the day when the glorious Son of Man returns, he will turn from us in shame? For those first disciples, they'd seen too much. They'd saw the risen Jesus in Galilee. And once the Holy Spirit helped them grasp the reality of Jesus' death and resurrection, the only reasonable thing was to follow him no matter what the cost. That was the obvious thing to do. And if the ending of Mark's gospel at verse 8 seems abrupt, I think it may be abrupt for a reason. Mark has, has now really told us everything about Jesus that we need to know, about his identity, about why he came, about what it means to follow him. And we're left wondering, aren't we, about these women who, who flee the tomb in awe and fear and astonishment with this revolutionary news of, of Jesus, the Son of God, who was crucified and is risen. And we ponder their response. Do they keep this news to themselves? Will they pass it on? And as we ponder their response, we realise that this is a question that we too must face. We must face each day. When we wake, will we follow Jesus? Will we live for the sake of this gospel? Will we look to his resurrection knowing that we share in his life and deny ourselves now? Take up our cross and follow him. The resurrection should be fuel for our discipleship. I've been listening to this uh, singer Andrew Peterson after Ken put that song on the group, uh, and one of the uh, songs that he writes on the CD is uh, a kind of he imagines himself as one of the disciples, and the song goes like this. I know it sounds crazy, but I know what I saw when the sun came up on the brightest day from the darkest night of all. I saw the man die. They laid him in a tomb. And I know because I saw it with my own two eyes when he stepped into the room. And I've seen too much, too much to deny. I've seen too much, too much to say goodbye. So we scattered to the four winds to tell them what we know. But I get so tired and the doubt creeps in and the doubt won't let me go. And it's all I can do to get up in the morning. It's all I can do to stand up in the storm. When all I remember is the passing form, a glimpse of glory before it was gone. And I get so tired of the ridicule, but I cannot deny what I know to be true. Because I've seen too much. What else can I do? Where else can I go, Lord? Where else can I go but to you? That's the, that's the song of someone who believes in the resurrection. That's the song of a disciple who denies themselves, takes up their cross and follows Jesus. We've come to the end of Mark's gospel now. It may be good if you've got time of next week or two just to take some uh, quiet and, and jot down some of the big lessons that God has taught you through this lesson. If you want to email me or share them uh, with the church, please 
send them uh, over on the email and I'll put them in the keeping in touch section. Uh, but hasn't it been great to, to see the glory of Jesus uh, in this Gospel of Mark? And I, I trust that as we've looked at the resurrection, they will fuel our discipleship. Uh, let's pray together. Dear Father, we thank you again for this good, good news. Lord, uh, may the truth of the resurrection uh, penetrate our hearts at a deeper level. Lord, we pray that we would uh, take time to ponder the awesome truth that Jesus came back to life and lives forever, ever, and that his disciples, as his disciples, we share in that life. Dear Father, we pray uh, that your word would dwell among us richly and continue to transform as we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.